Section six of the Prussian Officer and Other Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prussian Officer and Other Stories by D. H. Lawrence. Daughters of the Vicar, Chapters one and two. Chapter one. Mr. Lindley was first vicar of Aldecross. The cottages of this tiny hamlet had nestled in peace since their beginning, and the country folk had crossed the lanes and farmlands two or three miles to the parish churchyard at Greymead on the bright Sunday mornings. But when the pits were sunk, blank rows of dwellings started up beside the high roads, and a new population, skimmed from the floating scum of workmen, was filled in, the cottages and the country people almost obliterated. To suit the convenience of these new collier inhabitants, a church must be built at Aldecross. There was not too much money. And so the little building crouched like a humped stone and mortar mouse, with two little turrets at the west corners for ears, in the fields near the cottages and the apple-trees, as far as possible from the dwellings down the high-road. It had an uncertain, timid look about it, and so they planted big-leaved ivy to hide its shrinking newness so that now the little church stands buried in its greenery, stranded and sleeping among the fields, while the brick houses elbow nearer and nearer, threatening to crush it down. It is already obsolete. The Reverend Ernest Lindley, aged twenty-seven and newly married, came from his curacy in Suffolk to take charge of his church. He was just an ordinary young man, who had been to Cambridge and taken orders. His wife was a self-assured young woman, daughter of a Cambridgeshire rector. Her father had spent the whole of his thousand a year, so that Mrs. Lindley had nothing of her own. Thus the young married people came to Aldecross to live on a stipend of about a hundred and twenty pounds, and to keep up a superior position. They were not very well received by the new, raw, disaffected population of colliers. Being accustomed to farm labourers, Mr. Lindley had considered himself as belonging indisputably to the upper or ordering classes. He had to be humble to the county families, but still he was of their kind, whilst the common people were something different. He had no doubts of himself. He found, however, that the collier population refused to accept this arrangement. They had no use for him in their lives, and they told him so, callously. The women merely said, they were throng, or else, oh, it's no good you coming here, we're chapel. The men were quite good-humoured, so long as he did not touch them too nigh. They were cheerfully contemptuous of him, with a preconceived contempt he was powerless against. At last, passing from indignation to silent resentment, even if he dared have acknowledged it, to conscious hatred of the majority of his flock, and unconscious hatred of himself, he confined his activities to a narrow round of cottages, and he had to submit. He had no particular character, having always depended on his position in society to give him position among men. Now he was so poor, he had no social standing even among the common, vulgar tradespeople of the district, and he had not the nature, nor the wish, to make his society agreeable to them, nor the strength to impose himself where he would have liked to be recognized. He dragged on, pale and miserable and neutral. At first his wife raged with mortification. She took on airs and used a high hand. But her income was too small, the wrestling with tradesmen's bills was too pitiful, she only met with general callous ridicule when she tried to be impressive. Wounded to the quick of her pride, she found herself isolated in an indifferent, callous population. She raged indoors and out. 
but soon she learned that she must pay too heavily for her outdoor rages, and then she only raged within the walls of the rectory. There her feeling was so strong that she frightened herself. She saw herself hating her husband, and she knew that unless she were careful she would smash her form of life and bring catastrophe upon him and upon herself. So in very fear she went quiet. She hid, bitter and beaten by fear, behind the only shelter she had in the world her gloomy, poor parsonage. Children were born one every year. Almost mechanically she continued to perform her maternal duty, which was forced upon her. Gradually, broken by the suppressing of her violent anger and misery and disgust, she became an invalid and took to her couch. The children grew up healthy, but unwarmed and rather rigid. Their father and mother educated them at home, made them very proud and very genteel, put them definitely and cruelly in the upper classes, apart from the vulgar around them. So they lived quite isolated. They were good-looking, and had that curiously clean, semi-transparent look of the genteel, isolated poor. Gradually Mr. and Mrs. Lindley lost all hold on life, and spent their hours— weeks and years merely haggling to make ends meet, and pruning their children into gentility, urging them to ambition, weighting them with duty. On Sunday morning the whole family, except the mother, went down the lane to church, the long-legged girls in skimpy frocks, the boys in black coats and long, grey, unfitting trousers. They passed by their father's parishioners with mute, clear faces, childish mouths closed in pride that was like a doom to them, and childish eyes already unseeing. Miss Mary, the eldest, was the leader. She was a long, slim thing, with a fine profile and a proud, pure look of submission to a high fate. Miss Louisa, the second, was short and plump and obstinate-looking. She had more enemies than ideals. She looked after the lesser children, Miss Mary after the elder. The Collier children watched this pale, distinguished procession of the vicar's family pass mutely by, and they were impressed by the air of gentility and distance. They made mock of the trousers of the small sons. They felt inferior in themselves, and hate stirred their hearts. In her time Miss Mary received as governess a few little daughters of tradesmen. Miss Louisa managed the house and went among her father's churchgoers, giving lessons on the piano to the collier's daughters at thirteen shillings for twenty-six lessons. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 One winter morning, when his daughter Mary was about twenty years old, Mr. Lindley, a thin, unobtrusive figure in his black overcoat and his wide-awake, went down into Aldercross with a packet of white papers under his arm. He was delivering the parish almanacs. A rather pale, neutral man of middle age, he waited while the train thumped over the level crossing, going up to the pit which rattled busily just along the line. A wooden-legged man hobbled to open the gate. Mr. Lindley passed on. Just at his left hand, below the road and the railway, was the red roof of a cottage, showing through the bare twigs of apple-trees. Mr. Lindley passed round the low wall, and descended the worn steps that led from the highway down to the cottage, which crouched darkly and quietly away below the rumble of passing trains and the clank of coal-carts in a quiet little underworld of its own. Snowdrops with tight-shut buds were hanging very still under the bare currant-bushes. The clergyman was just going to knock when he heard a clinking noise, and turning, saw through the open door of a black shed just behind him an elderly woman in a black lace cap, stooping among reddish big cans, pouring a very bright liquid into a tun-dish. There was a smell of paraffin. 
The woman put down her can, took the tundish, and laid it on a shelf, then rose with a tin bottle. Her eyes met those of the clergyman. "'Oh, is it you, Mr. Lindley?' she said in a complaining tone. "'Go in!' The minister entered the house. In the hot kitchen sat a big, elderly man with a great grey beard, taking snuff. He grunted in a deep, muttering voice, telling the minister to sit down, and then took no more notice of him, but stared vacantly into the fire. Mr. Lindley waited. The woman came in, the ribbons of her black lace cap or bonnet hanging on her shawl. She was of medium stature, everything about her was tidy. She went up a step out of the kitchen, carrying the paraffin tin. Feet were heard entering the room up the step. It was a little haberdashery shop, with parcels on the shelves of the walls, a big old-fashioned sewing-machine with tailor's work lying round it in the open space. The woman went behind the counter, gave the child who had entered the paraffin bottle, and took from her a jug. "'My mother says shall you put it down,' said the child, and she was gone. The woman wrote in a book, then came into the kitchen with her jug. The husband, a very large man, rose and brought more coal to the already hot fire. He moved slowly and sluggishly. Already he was going dead. Being a tailor, his large form had become an encumbrance to him. In his youth he had been a great dancer and boxer. Now he was taciturn and inert. The minister had nothing to say, so he sought for his phrases. But John Durant took no notice, existing silent and dull. Mrs. Durant spread the cloth. Her husband poured himself beer into a mug and began to smoke and drink. "'Shall you have some?' he growled through his beard at the clergyman, looking slowly from the man to the jug, capable of this one idea. "'No, thank you,' replied Mr. Lindley, though he would have liked some beer. He must set the example in a drinking parish. "'We need a drop to keep us going,' said Mrs. Durant. She had rather a complaining manner. The clergyman sat on uncomfortably while she laid the table for the half-past ten lunch. Her husband drew up to eat. She remained in her little round armchair by the fire. She was a woman who would have liked to be easy in her life, but to whose lot had fallen a rough and turbulent family, and a slothful husband who did not care what became of himself or anybody. So her rather good-looking square face was peevish. She had that air of having been compelled all her life to serve unwillingly, and to control where she did not want to control. There was about her, too, that masterful aplomb of a woman who has brought up and ruled her sons, but even them she had ruled unwillingly. She had enjoyed managing her little haberdashery shop, riding in the carrier's cart to Nottingham, going through the big warehouses to buy her goods but the fret of managing her sons she did not like only she loved her youngest boy because he was her last and she saw herself free this was one of the houses the clergyman visited occasionally mrs durant as part of her regulation had brought up all her sons in the church not that she had any religion only it was what she was used to mr durant was without religion he read the fervently evangelical Life of John Wesley with a curious pleasure, getting from it a satisfaction as from the warmth of the fire or a glass of brandy. But he cared no more about John Wesley, in fact, than about John Milton, of whom he had never heard. Mrs. Durant took her chair to the table. "'I don't feel like eating,' she sighed. "'Why, aren't you well?' asked the clergyman, patronizing. "'It isn't that,' she sighed. She sat with shut straight mouth. "'I don't know what's going to become of us.' But the clergyman had ground himself down so long that he could not easily sympathize. "'Have you any trouble?' he asked. "'Hi, have I any trouble?' 
cried the elderly woman. I shall end my days in the workhouse. The minister waited, unmoved. What could she know of poverty in her little house of plenty? I hope not, he said. And the one lad as I wanted to keep by me, she lamented. The minister listened without sympathy, quite neutral. And the lad as would have been a support to my old age. What is going to become of us, she said. The clergyman, justly, did not believe in the cry of poverty, but wondered what had become of the son. "'Has anything happened to Alfred?' he asked. "'We've got word he's gone for a queen sailor,' she said sharply. "'He has joined the navy!' exclaimed Mr. Lindley. "'I think he could scarcely have done better to serve his queen and country on the sea. "'He is wanted to serve me!' she cried. "'And I wanted my lad at home!' Alfred was her baby, her last, whom she had allowed herself the luxury of spoiling. "'You will miss him,' said Mr. Lindley. "'That is certain. But this is no regrettable step for him to have taken, on the contrary.' "'That's easy for you to say, Mr. Lindley,' she replied tartly. "'Do you think I want my lad climbing ropes at another man's bidding like a monkey? There is no dishonour, surely, in serving the navy.' "'Dishonour this, dishonour that,' cried the angry old woman. "'He goes and makes a slave of himself, and he'll rue it.' Her angry, scornful impatience nettled the clergyman, and silenced him for some moments. "'I do not see,' he retorted at last, white at the gills and inadequate, "'that the Queen's service is any more to be called slavery than working in a mine. "'At home he was at home, and his own master. "'I know he'll find a difference.' "'It may be the making of him,' said the clergyman. "'It will take him away from bad companionship and drink. "'Some of the Durant's sons were notorious drinkers, "'and Alfred was not quite steady.' "'And why indeed shouldn't he have his glass?' cried the mother. "'He picks no man's pocket to pay for it.' The clergyman stiffened at what he thought was an allusion to his own profession and his unpaid bills. "'With all due consideration, I am glad to hear he has joined the Navy,' he said. "'Me, with my old age coming on, and his father working very little, I'd thank you to be glad about something else besides that, Mr. Lindley.' The woman began to cry. Her husband, quite impassive, finished his lunch of meat pie and drank some beer. Then he turned to the fire, as if there were no one in the room but himself. "'I shall respect all men who serve God and their country on the sea, Mrs. Durant,' said the clergyman stubbornly. "'That is all very well when they're not your sons who are doing the dirty work. It makes a difference,' she replied tartly. "'I should be proud if any one of my sons were to enter the navy.' "'Ay, well, we're not all of us made alike.' The minister rose. He put down a large folded paper. "'I've brought the almanac,' he said. Mrs. Durant unfolded it. "'I do like a bit of colour in things,' she said petulantly. The clergyman did not reply. "'There's that envelope for the organist's fund,' said the old woman, and rising, she took the thing from the mantelpiece, went into the shop, and returned, sealing it up. "'Which is all I can afford,' she said. Mr. Lindley took his departure. In his pocket, the envelope containing Mrs. Durant's offering for Miss Louisa's services. He went from door to door, delivering the almanacs in dull routine.' Jaded with the monotony of the business, and with the repeated effort of greeting half-known people, he felt barren and rather irritable. At last he returned home. In the dining-room was a small fire. Mrs. Lindley, growing very stout, lay on her couch. The vicar carved the cold mutton. Miss Louisa, short and plump and rather flushed, came in from the kitchen. Miss Mary, dark with a beautiful white brow and grey eyes, served the vegetables. The children chattered a little, but not exuberantly. The very air seemed starved. 
"'I went to the Durants,' said the vicar, as he served out small portions of mutton. "'It appears Alfred has run away to join the Navy.' "'Do him good,' came the rough voice of the invalid. Miss Louisa, attending to the youngest child, looked up in protest. "'Why has he done that?' asked Mary's low musical voice. "'He wanted some excitement, I suppose,' said the vicar. "'Shall we say grace?' The children were arranged. All bent their heads. Grace was pronounced. At the last word every face was being raised to go on with the interesting subject. "'He's just done the right thing for once,' came the rather deep voice of the mother, save him from becoming a drunken sot like the rest of them. "'They're not all drunken, Mamma," said Miss Louisa stubbornly. "'It's no fault of their upbringing if they're not. Walter Durant is a standing disgrace.' "'As I told Mrs. Durant,' said the vicar, eating hungrily, "'it is the best thing he could have done. "'It will take him away from temptation "'during the most dangerous years of his life. "'How old is he? Nineteen? Twenty, said Miss Louisa. Twenty, repeated the vicar. "'It will give him wholesome discipline "'and set before him some sort of standard of duty and honour. "'Nothing could have been better for him. "'But we shall miss him from the choir,' said Miss Louisa, "'as if taking opposite sides to her parents.' that is as it may be said the vicar i prefer to know he is safe in the navy than running the risk of getting into bad ways here was he getting into bad ways asked the stubborn miss louisa you know louisa he wasn't quite what he used to be said miss mary gently and steadily miss louisa shut her rather heavy jaw sulkily she wanted to deny it but she knew it was true for her he had been a laughing warm lad with something kindly and something rich about him he had made her feel warm it seemed the days would be colder since he had gone quite the best thing he could do said the mother with emphasis i think so said the vicar but his mother was almost abusive because i suggested it he spoke in an injured tone what does she care for her children's welfare said the invalid their wages is all her concern i suppose she wanted him at home with her said miss louisa yes she did at the expense of his learning to be a drunkard like the rest of them retorted her mother george durant doesn't drink defended her daughter because he got burned so badly when he was nineteen in the pit and that frightened him the navy is a better remedy than that at least certainly said the vicar certainly and to this miss louisa agreed yet she could not but feel angry that he had gone away for so many years she herself was only nineteen End of chapter two End of section 6.